Welcome to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. For more information, go to goodshepherdnewyork.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. A reading from the Gospel according to John. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not the disciples, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you can remember your first moment of religious doubt. Mine came on a cloudy day in 1986. I was literally carted around on errands by my grandmother, affectionately known to us as Nana. I was the ripe age of six, and it was at the grocery store that religious doubt descended upon me. I peppered my grandmother with questions about where food comes from and why it smells bad when it rots and why do things rot anyways? And I remember questions about milk and butter and baseball cards and gum wrappers and sugar cereal. And for this little six-year-old, those kinds of mundane questions eventually led me to the question of God. Who made God? I asked. No one, said my grandmother. One hand was pushing me in the cart, the other was holding a coupon at a distance that could be seen by aging eyes. Well, when did God begin, I asked. What do you mean, she said. God doesn't have a beginning. So I sat there mulling this over in my mind to the cadence of squeaking wheels of a shopping cart. 
And then the question struck me like a bolt of lightning. I had never seen God. Could I even ask what was in my head? How do you know that God's real? I blurted out. I recall that she made a little laugh, the kind that grandparents give when they think that you're being either cute or silly or both. She mumbled a half-distracted answer and continued to search for the next item on her grocery list. I recall feeling frustrated at that. Right? My existential quest was so easily brushed aside, and so I said, I, I blurted out, Nana, but how do you know? And she gave me an intense look, one that was frustrated by the volume of my epistemic questions. I quickly glanced away, and I remember my focus shifting to a soup can. She released a deep sigh, and then she blurted out, Michael John, I just know. And in that moment, I was both terrified and incurably lost in wonder. She doesn't know, I thought to myself. And I wonder who does. Now, I've often wondered if that wasn't the worst thing or worst way someone could have responded to the normal questions, God questions, of a kindergartner. But lately, as I think about how far my eyes would have rolled back in my head if she had waxed eloquent about some classic defense of God's existence, like the unmoved mover theory, and when I consider the way that the insecure heat of her response galvanized my own quest to know the answer for myself, I wonder if it wasn't the best quest or gift that she ever gave me. Now, when I reflect upon it, as we all reflect upon our lives, I think my spiritual experience didn't begin there. But as best as I can tell, my first moment of true doubt gave my spirituality a new energy and a new sense of interest and quest that has remained with me to this day. It wasn't until later in a Sunday school class that I first heard the phrase, Doubting Thomas. It was used to describe an uncle who didn't attend church and struggled to believe in God. The phrase was spoken in that sort of hushed way that signals to all who are listening that this is kind of a shameful thing. And I remember making a mental note, doubt is not welcome here. Doubt is not okay. I can remember the first time that I really began to question that motto. I was on a mission trip with my youth group. We were trying to convert the local heathens of a small town of Nevada. Don't ask me why that town or that state was chosen, but here we were and I was sitting on a basketball court with a girl about my age and I was trying to explain to her why she should become a Christian. I had a little color beaded bracelet that reminded me of my message. The, the, the black bead was for uh, sin. The red bead stood for the cross. The white bead was for forgiveness. The yellow bead was for heaven. Green bead was for growth. As a teenager, armed with such a tool, who could resist, right? Well, as it turns out, pretty much everyone. The girl kept complicating my presentation with follow-up questions and just outright disagreements. And I remember thinking, okay, if she's going to change her mind, she's going to need to begin to doubt her beliefs. I didn't have a savvy way to communicate this, so I just said it. I think if you're going to be saved, you're going to have to learn how to doubt what you believe. And then it dawned on me, right, the entire enterprise of the church to convert as many people as possible required the outsiders, required of outsiders, what it forbade to insiders, doubt. I rehearsed the statement again in my head, if you're going to be saved, you're going to have to learn how to doubt what you believe. It's a phrase that's proved prophetic for my life even to today.
for too long, Thomas has been cast as a cautionary tale at best and a villain at worst. But to see Thomas that way completely misses what the Gospel of John is doing in this story. Consider how the story unfolds. Just before today's text, Mary has come to Jesus' disciples announcing that he's no longer dead. She has seen him. Now, a couple of the disciples, they doubt her report, and they need to run and see for themselves. And yet, curiously, we never villainize Peter or John for that skeptical sprint to the tomb. Our text today picks up with the disciples locked in a room for fear. Yet several of them have seen the risen Christ. Where is the faith, we would ask? Where is the courage? Where's the new vision and the new leadership? People have seen the risen Lord, and they're still hiding, afraid inside of a room. Well, it's here that Jesus appears to all of them. He speaks to their fear. He says, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. He shows them his wounds. In an admittedly odd moment, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit of God. This is John's version of Pentecost. And then Jesus, like that day of Pentecost, sends them out. He says, as God sent me, so I send you. And his last word to them is that as they go, they're to bring the message and the practice of forgiveness. So quick recap here. The disciples see the risen Christ, some for the second time. They're given peace. They rejoice. They see his wounds. They receive God's spirit. And they are sent with a mandate to forgive. What a powerful moment. But then the story fast forwards one week later. And what do we find? What is the result of this powerful encounter with the risen Christ? Well, they're still behind closed doors. Perhaps Thomas saw this incoherence. Perhaps he heard their report, but still saw their timidity and their self-preservational behavior and thought, I have my doubts. He says, quote, I will not believe unless. In this case, he needs to see what they've seen. Again, this is nothing new to the story. Mary didn't believe until she saw. Peter and John didn't believe until they saw. The rest of the disciples didn't believe, it seems, until they saw. And then they even struggled in their fear and hiding. So why do we villainize Thomas here? Seven days later, when these enlightened yet timid disciples are again hiding behind closed doors, Christ appears again. Again, he says to them, peace be with you, apparently recognizing the same fear present in the room a week ago. This time he addresses Thomas directly. And I want you to notice that Thomas doesn't ask to see or to touch Christ's wounds. Christ initiates that intimate showcase. And when Thomas sees and touches, when he has a personal encounter with the risen Christ, we get his confession. It's a jubilant utterance. He says, my Lord, and my God. Wonder and love and faith erupt in Thomas. They're expressed through this confession. Every disciple up to this point has experienced this and more, and yet over and over, with every new revelation, with every new encounter, we get nothing in terms of response from them. John tells us of no great or heroic reaction. The disciples are fain to talk the right talk about Jesus. They tell Thomas that he should believe and yet they still cower. Only Thomas responds in a transformative way. Thomas isn't the villain of this story at all. He's the model. 
The story affirms for us that doubt is a part of the transformative path of following Christ. We can study, we can learn, we can listen about other people's thoughts and experiences of faith all we want, and it can be very helpful at times. But unless we have our own personal encounters, we ourselves will never change. Thomas had to doubt his way to faith. And maybe I was right and didn't realize it on that summer day in Nevada on the basketball court. If you will be saved, you'll have to learn to doubt what you believe. If Easter is about the mystery of that holy cycle of living and suffering and dying and rising, and if it's true that our holy evolution takes place as we repeat that cycle over and over again, following the spiral of growth and insight and wisdom and love, then doubt seems to be what helps us transition from one stage to the next. Doubt is the threshold that moves us forward in spiritual growth. How true is it, is it if we aren't willing to doubt, we never will be saved? If Peter wasn't willing to doubt his stable career trajectory as a fisherman, if the disciples weren't willing to doubt their sense of honor and status, which was betrayed in their request to sit at Jesus' right hand, if they weren't willing to doubt their reluctance to see Jesus embrace his own suffering and rejection, if they weren't willing to doubt that they were worthy of shame and hostility after their moment of abandonment, betrayal, and denial, if Peter wasn't later willing to doubt that he shouldn't eat with Gentiles or that they shouldn't be fully included into the church community or that they need not be circumcised or they need to be circumcised rather, where would we be today? Doubt was the threshold to each new breakthrough. We have to learn to embrace our genuine doubts, often caused by our suffering or that of others. We have to learn to chase it down until whatever needs to die, dies. And then in an act of trust, ironically, we hope that there's new life on the other side. At one point, I had to doubt my belief that drinking alcohol was sinful. I was told that it was, I took that at face value, until my experience and study complicated that belief. At one point, I had to doubt my belief that the earth was only 10,000 years old. I was told that it was, I took that at face value, until my experience and study complicated that belief. I had to doubt my belief that only men were allowed to lead, by God to lead the church. I was told that they were, I took that at face value, until my experience of confusion, of seeing the pain of women in that system, of witnessing the undeniable wisdom and strength of women modeling leadership, listening to new perspectives on how to interpret the Bible, complicated and eventually overturned that belief. I could go on and on about beliefs that I had to doubt in order to grow in love and to follow in the way of Christ. What is the fate of other people's faith, a people of other faiths, I've asked. Is God really as violent as we read in the Hebrew Bible? I've asked. What does God think about all of my queer friends? And with each embrace of doubt and curiosity, I've been deepened, I've been widened. This often felt like death. It was filled with insecurity and uncertainty. But in each case, I've experienced a dying and a rising, a new understanding and a trust that emerges and a real sense of growing in the likeness of Christ. I wonder where there's doubt in your life that you've been repressing. You've been hiding behind locked doors, so to speak. 
I wonder if you can hear in the place of fear and hiding the words of Christ. Peace be with you. I wonder if you can let your doubt send you on a journey, your own probe, to use the metaphor of this story. I wonder if there are safe people in your life with whom you can process your conditions for trust, people with whom you can share, as Thomas did, I don't think I can believe unless. Are you the kind of person that someone can process this stuff with? See, our church seeks to be the haven or a haven for this process, to encourage honesty with our questions, to encourage curiosity in the face of what baffles or confuses us, to encourage patience, to listen, learn, and grow, and courage to die to certain ideas and behaviors and clear the way for new life to emerge. I wonder what part of you God may be saving right now because you're willing to embrace doubt as a catalyst for true faith. I pray that we can all learn to reckon with the axiom spoken by the mouth of this child when he exclaimed in frustration, you'll never be saved unless you learn to doubt what you believe. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene Creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you would like to support us, please text Good Shepherd NY, all lowercase with no spaces, to 77977. That's Good Shepherd NY to 77977. Or visit our website, goodshepherdnewyork.com. Thank you for listening.